0: This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Techno podcast. I'm Sarah Conti, and I'm the Senior Manager, Advice Technical and Regulatory for BT. I'm part of the BT Technical Services team, a group of qualified individuals who can help you as advisors answer any technical advice strategy related queries you may have. The new breach reporting obligations came into effect on 1 October 2021, and it's safe to say these add an additional layer of complexity given the expanded scope and penalties that apply. Under the new regime, AFSLs and credit licensees must report all reportable situations to ASIC in writing. Joining our podcast today to explain the new regime and to give us some practical tips is Brian Pollock, Director of Corporate Governance for the Principals Community. The Principals Community is a privately owned business which is focused on being the community of choice for successful self-licensed businesses. They look after 127 licensees who collectively authorize 1,260 advisors across the country and provide support to transition businesses into their own license. They have a broad offer that focuses on bringing the self-licensed community together, governance, scaled benefits, as well as delivering significant professional development to advisors. Brian, thanks for joining our podcast again.
1: Anytime, Sarah.
0: Um, Brian, can you give our listeners an overview of the new breach reporting obligations?
1: Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, well, the new um, regime is certainly more complex than was in place prior to the 1st of October last year. Um, And I think the simplest way to answer this question is to focus on what must be reported. Um, so, we have breaches or likely breaches of a core obligation of the Corporations Act that are deemed significant. Uh, and for those who like the detail, the core obligations under section 912A or 912B of the Corporations Act. Um, and that covers things like general licensing obligations, like taking reasonable steps to ensure advisors comply with the financial services law, um, being competent to provide financial services. Having adequate arrangements in place to manage conflicts of interest, etc. So, within the deemed breaches, that covers things like um, a breach of civil penalty provisions. Uh, and as an example, that could be not turning off ongoing advice fees where the ongoing fee arrangement is terminated, or not providing a step in advice where it's required. The next item is around the commission of a criminal offence that's punishable by 12 months or more imprisonment or where it's dishonesty, three months or more of imprisonment. Uh, An example of that could be where an advisor uh, amends their financial services guide without getting the licensee's approval uh, as a good example of uh, how far that goes. The next item is around misleading deceptive conduct. And then we have material loss or damage to a wholesale retail client. And that also includes managed investment schemes or superation entities. And outside the dean, we also have breaches or likely breaches of core obligations of the Corporations Act that are otherwise reportable, having regards the number, the frequency and the impact of the the breach. This is like the old significance test. So it requires a subjective decision made against those three criteria. Now, beyond those um, matters, we also have 30 plus day investigations. And this is an investigation into whether a significant breach or likely significant breach of a co-obligation has occurred. So you've got a matter in front of you, you're not quite sure whether you actually, uh, it's a breach or a likely breach and so you need to investigate it further. Uh, and where the matter exceeds the calendar days, irrespective of whether the, the ultimate outcome is that there's no breach, you still must report that investigation to the regulator. Uh, and then the last two items we have is situations constituting gross negligence or serious fraud, so relatively straightforward. And the most controversial one, I think, is reportable situations about other licensees and their financial advisors in relation to personal advice to retail clients. Uh, This is certainly an area that's created a fair degree of discussion and a degree of confusion. Um, And for me, this goes um, clearly beyond the provision of poor advice, which is typically what advisors focus in on when they're thinking about reporting other advisors. Um, but this can go so far as to um, matters where an external advisor refuses to turn off their ongoing advice fees, where a client terminates the ongoing fee arrangement, and such action would be reportable against that advisor and that licensee.
0: Okay. So, Brian, there are 11 situations that are excluded from the breach reporting obligations. Um, can you give some light to what are the more common exclusions?
1: Yeah, um, and again, for the guy advisors that like the detail, the corporation's regulations, um, section 7.6.02A, and then in brackets 2, um, that covers the actual detail around which civil penalties uh, aren't automatically reportable. Um, and as you mentioned, there are 11 there. So the most common examples for me would relate like to not complying with all the items in ASICs. Complaints handling retro guide, 271. That's quite exhaustive. So imagine if you had to comply with every word in that retro guide. This is not practical. Uh, failure to notify ASIC in relation to a relevant provider, i.e. you appoint a new advisor, this is a licensee, uh, who starts giving advice but you do not notify ASIC within the relevant period. Uh, not handing out a single FSG or FDS or PDS. Uh, and uh, the last example would be failure to get, obtain written consent from your client and to provide a copy of the relevant product provider form before deducting ongoing advice fees. They are, uh, I suppose, the typical examples of those 11 exclusions you mentioned before. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, can you give some more detail around the categories of reportable situations?
1: Yeah, um, so I think the best way to think about these reportable situations is to bucket them into two categories. Uh, the first category or group of reportable situations do not require a determination of significance they're, they're simply reportable uh, a few good examples uh, a few examples include the gross negligence and serious fraud I mentioned before the 30 plus day investigations uh, and breaches of civil penalty provisions which are the most common ones uh, as well as misleading deceptive conduct uh, and misleading deceptive conduct is pretty linear you know if you have a statement there which could be misleading you um, there's no real test uh, around the intentional otherwise. The second group relates to matters that require a determination of significance. And these are such breaches or likely breaches of obligations. And the efficiently, honestly and fairly one is probably the one that comes to my mind. Uh, We talk about fee for no service out in the industry and it's been very topical. Um, If you fail to provide one service to one client, then you, you may likely not breach the efficiently, honestly and fairly obligations, but, If you fail to provide those services to 50 clients or 100 clients, then it's more likely that you've breached that obligation more broadly and as such have a reportable situation. Um, And it's worth knowing that reportable situations about other licensees and their financial advisors could fall to either the deemed breaches or the objective test or the significance test as well, depending on the nature of the matter, more likely to be in the deemed because you're looking at one client in that regards typically.
0: You've mentioned um, determination of significance a couple of times. Who makes that determination?
1: Yeah, it's the licensees who make that determination. And typically within the group that we work with, it would be the responsible manager for the licensee um, or their compliance manager, depending on the size of the group. For larger dealer groups, it's often the compliance function or compliance manager making those decisions because uh, they're trying to remove the conflict away from licensees. And it's really tricky because when you report these significant breaches, they, they will have impact if there's advisors named, especially when you think about the Financial Services Credit Panel and the Warning or recommend obligations.
0: Yeah. Brian, can you explain a little more about the process that a licensee will go through when they're reporting a breach?
1: Yeah. If we take a, um, a high-level view of breach management process, there's probably four distinct phases. The first being to identify the incident, um, is the incident potentially a reportable situation? Uh, and to ensure the incident is handed over to a person that is suitably trained to review and assess such matters, and that would be like your compliance manager within your business or your responsible manager if it's a small business. Uh, for me, this is the most critical step. It's often issues are rectified without staff automatically turn their mind to the breach reporting obligations. And because they're so focused on fixing the client up, that they're not thinking about, oh, this is actually a reportable situation or breach. It simply is, we've done something wrong for a client, we need to fix it up. The second step is time to take an assessment, um, i.e. the incident or or the breach or likely breach of a corporation. Um, This requires the assessor to gather all relevant facts and engage the parties associated with the incident, that could be the advisor, the client services manager, admin, admin team, and to not only consider the matter at hand, so the actual issue that you're dealing to, but also to consider the matter more broadly because there could be a range of clients impacted. I think too often I see a matter being looked at in isolation versus really stepping back and considering, well, have we had any previous matters? Um, do I need to look at this more broadly? Because if this happened for, for Brian, could this happen to Sarah and other clients as well? Um, and that's usually quite relevant and um, logical when you look at the matter. As this assessment progresses, it's really important that we maintain an awareness of when the investigation commenced as well to ensure if we spend more than that 30 calendar days that I mentioned before, that this suddenly doesn't become reportable, and if we actually work it out to the fact that the, there's no breach in a person's life. In the third step, where the matter is reportable, we need to report this matter to the regulator within 30 calendar days. The, the report should be really, really based on the facts uh, and without emotion. Be mindful that when you report a breach, you should report the information relevant to that breach. Um, And I'd be mindful of not putting information that goes beyond the breach. So keep to the facts relevant to the matter. Uh, You need to ensure and really make it abundantly clear on what caused the breach and who was responsible, uh, especially given those warnings and reprimands and the, the new panel that's in place for advisors. The fourth step is to remediate the matter. Uh, Now, it's worth pointing out that we also have notify, investigate and remediate obligations associated with the relevant party, i.e. the client who received the advice. These obligations where personal advice has been provided uh, and a reportable situation has occurred, and that excludes the investigation process, and there are reasonable grounds to suspect the client has suffered or will suffer loss um, as a result of the breach. Um, and we've got to think about this too from a client point of view, do they have legally enforceable rights to recover the loss from the licensee? Uh, and typically that would be the case where personal advice is being given. Uh, and those obligations around notifying the client, they run in parallel to the breach reporting obligations. Thus, we, Licensees need to be careful that they don't breach those notify obligations by being so focused on the breach report to the regulator uh, without making sure they run in that concurrent notification process with their clients. Um And as a final point, beyond those four steps, we're still waiting on ASIC to release their final rotary guide, 256, which relates to the review and remediation obligations. That consultation ended over six months ago and I did reach out to them recently, um, but there seems to be no set timeframe to release that to um, to our industry.
0: Yeah, Uh, certainly a lot for licensees to consider in that, um, that reporting process itself. Brian, in your work as Director of Corporate Governance for the Principals Community, you work with licensees on a daily basis. Um, firstly, what are the common breaches you're seeing? And secondly, do you have any tips to help avoid breaches occurring in the first place?
1: Oh, yeah, plenty to talk about here. Um, so the most common breaches um, I'm seeing, um, so I'd say the most common of all of them, and this is probably oh, geez, two-thirds of all the breaches we're seeing reported. And that relates to ongoing advice fees uh, not being turned off where the ongoing fee arrangement has been terminated. Um, There's a range of reasons for this. Uh, It could be the advisor had the conversation with the client and then forgets to create a workflow task to turn off the fees because it's a manual process. Or they hand it over to the CSM or the admin manager who simply forgets to process it. Or two of the three funds are turned off and a small fund's missed. Um, or simply it goes into licensee's workflow. It's not prioritized. That's, it's not turned off in a timely fashion, and we subsequently get paid ongoing advice fees. Um, or it could be that the fee consent forms are all being turned back, but they forgot to provide their renewal um, uh, notice back in. So, And because they haven't renewed it, the arrangement terminates, but we still continue to get fees because the product fee consent forms have been returned. So lots of different reasons for this manual process to fall over um, I've seen really small amounts being reported, uh, like below $20 to the regulator. Uh, it'd be great if we could see some regulatory relief that where such immaterial matters are identified and they aren't reckless. Typically, these are these are just true mistakes, and the advisors quickly remediate the clients because they often embarrass that it's occurred in the first place. But the cost to actually manage that breach process, Sarah, is far exceeds the remediation cost. So for such immaterial matters, it'd be good to see some common sense being applied. Um, The next obvious breach that we're seeing relates to statements of advice and record or advice breaches. Um, These relate to records of advice being provided where maybe a statement of advice should have been provided. uh, And that could be due to the advice or client circumstances being significantly different or it's simply being new advice. Um, And a real risk for advisors and licensees who are really trying to do the right thing with their clients. uh, Where those clients are seeking time-critical advice um, and the advisor may agree to provide time-critical advice and services uh, and provide that further financial service, and that could be like end of of the, uh, the year around tax planning advice, and it needs to be done quickly. We only have five business days to provide the client with a statement of advice. If we don't do that within that five business days, That's a civil penalty. That's automatically reportable. Uh, I'm not sure how many advisors or licensees are fully aware that that time critical simply leads to a reportable situation Uh, and one to watch out for, especially around the end of financial year uh, processing.
0: Yeah. But Brian, recently the treasury released its consultation on advisor education standards Um, So one area they're seeking input on is the experienced advisor pathway for advisors with at least 10 years um, of full-time equivalent experience in Australia and a clean disciplinary record. How will these new breach reporting obligations impact this potential pathway for experienced advisors?
1: Yeah, great question, Sarah. Um, We actually sent out a communication to our community about this consultation at the end of August. Um, given the relevance to um, our industry. Uh, In this, we raise the fact that the proposal requires advisors to have a clean disciplinary record. And what that means is no matters recorded on the financial advisor register, um, no adverse AFCA findings relating to the advisor's conduct, uh, no non-adherence to CPD obligations, um, and no disciplinary action taken by a professional association. Okay, so they're the categories that lead to that uh, clean uh, compliance record, disciplinary record. Um, But even if the consultation paper was progressed and the advisor with the licensee self-assessed that the advisor meets the 10-year-plus allowance, and that self-assessment can still be impacted by future uh, misconduct. And this is where the breach reporting uh, requirements made by licensees are very relevant. Um, to these matters because they could lead to advisors who have been self-assessed as being meeting the requirements, uh, no longer meeting those requirements in the future because that breach has been made. Um, and then that might get referred to the financial services credit panel who then takes further action. Uh, and then that may lead to the financial advisor register being updated with a relevant matter. And when I'm talking about the financial services credit panel, um, they have a range of powers and actions they can take. Um, with most of the actions probably excluding the warnings or being added to that register that I mentioned before. So the breach reporting regime can definitely impact an advisor's ability to meet the criteria um, and in particular maintain that pathway. Um, and if the pathway was actually subsequently removed, the advisor would need to complete the formal education equivalent to the requirements for existing advisors at that time.
0: Yeah, look, certainly one advisors in that cohort will need to watch closely as and when those recommendations from consultation are released. Definitely. Um, Yeah, Brian, I've just got one final question for you. What are your top tips for licensees when it comes to the new breach reporting obligations?
1: Top tips, okay. Um, So I'd probably cover four different areas and I think it's equally applicable for whether you're an advisor or a licensee. So the first one is, I think this is really important, take the time to truly understand the breach reporting obligations and, as importantly, what actions the regulator can take against the advisors or your advisors. The warnings for reprimands and the Financial Services Credit Panel is all about the advisor. The licensee may not even be aware that the advisor has been engaged uh, through those um, direct advisor actions. So just because you've got a warning or reprimand doesn't mean that the licensee is aware of the matter. Um, at that time until it's finalized. The second one is make sure you work closely, and this is the advisor and the licensee, especially where you as the licensee uh, intend to report advice to ASIC. So it could be we failed to turn off those ongoing advice fees uh, or you didn't do an assessment advice when you should have done a record advice, and so the advice is reported. Uh, we're certainly seeing warnings and recommends issued associated with the of advice not being Uh, given to clients where records of advice have been done. So the the last thing you want is for an advisor to receive a warning or recommend letter from the regulator if the advisor wasn't even aware of being reported in the first instance. So work together, guys. Third one is be clear on what expectations are in place. Um, And that's expectations between the licensee and the advisor. And it's important for advisors to understand what the licensee requires of you should you as an advisor be engaged directly by the regulator. Um, Some licensees will work with the advisors and ask them to provide an an annual attestation or um, they might have their advisors sit on meetings with myself as an example, to talk about refugee changes, uh, share their experience and um, allow the advisors to ask their own questions. But it's really important for um, the advisors and licensees to be working hand in hand, uh, given the implications of the new breach reporting regime for advisors in their careers. Um, and the final point share learnings and context openly with advisors on what breaches are being reported or what we're seeing out in the industry. Uh, we're all professionals, uh, and context, re- context really makes a difference uh, for advisors.
0: Yeah. Look, Brian, thanks so much for your time and your insights on this. Certainly a lot for advisors and licensees to consider when they're assessing the new breach reporting regime.
1: Absolutely. And I think the more we talk about this and share common tips and traps, um, the better we are as an industry to respond.
0: Yeah. Now, remember, if you have any technical questions on the new breach reporting regime or any other legislative matters, you can contact the BT Technical Services team on one 655 901 or by email to technical at btfinancialgroup.com. And you can join us for our fortnightly BT Academy webinars where we discuss all things technical and regulatory in the advice space. Join Brian Ashenden on Wednesday, 28 September at 12 noon Australian Eastern Standard Time for our next BT Academy webinar. Episode 60, need an extra hour a day. With daylight savings imminent for some, instead of worrying about fading curtains or the cows not knowing when to be milked, we've been given more than an hour of issues to consider. In this regulatory and technical update, Brian will look at the various consultations released by government and other parties, including the quality of advice review and professional standards changes, as well as recent proposed changes introduced into the parliament. And with all of this occurring before the next 2022 federal budget in October, filling the extra hour won't be hard. To register for that session, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. There, you can also view our previous webinars on demand and all sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast is being developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.